life is in this service. That's good. I thought we were going to be the only ones. There's one other Oklahoman back there somewhere. That's great. We uh, love being here these last few days, especially because we saw in the uh, news last night, it was 117 in Alva, Oklahoma last night. Now, we're from Oklahoma City. I think it was only about 107 there. So anyway, they're about to set records back there. I think the record in Oklahoma is 120, they said, so they're closing in on that. But uh, anyway, that's what we get to go back to tomorrow. This is the only time we've been to North Carolina. We got here Friday evening and spent yesterday driving around looking at some of the sites. a beautiful place, and we had a great time being here. We're just thank, so thankful for the hospitality and the friendship we already uh, feel with the staff here and with the, the folks here in the church. We appreciate it very much. And it's a privilege to be here and to kind of bat lead off in this uh, timely series uh, that you're having this summer on uh, the turbulent times that we live in today. And I want to just uh, thank Pastor Davey for inviting us to come and to be here. Um, I know that it's, uh, it's a great privilege, a great responsibility to be in a pulpit like this, to, to teach God's Word, and I take that very seriously. Uh, so thank you so much for inviting us and having us here. If you turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 4, our text is Mark 4, uh, verses 35 to 41, bringing a message called uh, How to Face the Storms of Life. Probably like me, you get a lot of things sent to you by folks on the internet and so on. Someone sent me a deal a a while back that had a lot of uh, the why questions that people ask in life. Uh, One of them uh, was, uh, why does Hawaii have interstate highways? Another one was, uh, why do kamikaze pilots wear helmets? Uh, Why is the word abbreviation so long? Why is the person who invests all your money called a broker? I like that one. Uh, Why isn't phonetic spelled the way it sounds? Uh, Why is it that if someone tells you there are 10 billion stars, you believe them, but if you see a sign that says wet paint, you have to touch it to make sure? And here's my favorite one. It says, uh, why do gas stations lock their bathroom doors? Are they afraid someone might clean them? Well, there's uh, another why question uh, that's asked very often that's not uh, very funny. It's probably the most asked question of all, and all of us here have asked it at one time or another, and that is, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me now? It's a fact that all of us in life uh, face troubled waters. We all face uh, the choppy seas of life. We all encounter the storms of life. They're inevitable. Uh, The question is not, will I or if we will go through the storms of life, but the question is, Uh, How will we face these storms when we encounter them? Now, I live in Oklahoma, and we are known for our storms there. In fact, I uh, saw a young man, and he told me that he was going to come to the University of Oklahoma. And I thought it was interesting. I said, well, why are you coming to Oklahoma? He says, well, I want to be a meteorologist, study study weather. So I thought, well, that's the perfect place, because we're known for tornadoes and football, I guess, are the two things we're known for. If you've ever been in Oklahoma or lived there, you know they come in from the northwest pretty much, these storms, and they can metastasize into these huge storms. Uh, that bring these massive tornadoes that we have in the state of Oklahoma. And they they sometimes come out of nowhere. And that's the way it is really with the storms of life. Um, A difficult or broken relationship can just kind of come out of nowhere. A financial crisis, legal problems, painful health issues, maybe uh, the death of someone that we love very much or the loss of a job, maybe conflict in the church or at work, maybe some temptation some addictive pattern that has you in its grasp and in its grip. 
Someone mentioned, they said, well, just the whole situation in our culture today and society really is a storm, isn't it? Just the, the turbulence that we see in our culture today. All of these are storms that we face. There's a great saying I read years ago, and the person said, there's only two kinds of people in the world. There's those who are going through a crisis or those who are going to go through a crisis. And really, uh, that's true in our lives. You all may remember the uh, movie uh, that came out several years ago called uh, The Perfect Storm. It was about actually three storms that that came together, two storms that were out there that collided with a hurricane. And it's a massive storm that really became just an apocalyptic situation out in the Atlantic uh, off the coast of uh, New England. And it's ironic that this hurricane that converged with these other two storms was named Hurricane Grace. I've always thought that was interesting. Uh, The boats that were out there faced waves that were 10 stories high. As you know from the movie, some of the boats were engulfed by that and uh, never, never seen or heard from again. Now, before us here in Mark chapter 4, we have a story of the disciples, and we could say that what they were facing was hurricane grace, if you will, a different kind of grace, God's grace that came into their lives to teach them some lessons. And while difficult to endure, uh, this storm teaches some very important lessons to them and to us. In effect, we could say that this was the perfect storm. Let's read about it together, beginning in verse 35. And on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took him along with them just as he was in the boat and other boats with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And he himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who is this then, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, I've titled this message, How to Face the Storms of Life. It could be called uh, weathering the storms of life or what to do when the ship is sinking. I read a a great quote years ago by a man, a a commentator from years ago that I respect named Harold Sinjin. He says this about this passage. He says, strictly speaking, this is the story of two storms, one on the surface of the waters and the other in the hearts of the disciples. That's true, isn't it? We face a storm in life. There's the storm we face on the outside But really, oftentimes, the bigger storm is the storm down on the inside. And what we see from this narrative, this miracle here, is that Jesus is the sovereign of the storms on the outside, but he's also the sovereign of the storm on the inside as well. Now, I want to look at this passage under four main points. I want to look at the setting briefly, then look at the storm, then look at the Savior, and then in verses 40 and 41, uh, what we might call here the sequel. So let's begin by considering the setting. This is the first of four miracles in Mark 4 and 5. It's a collection of four miracle stories in these two chapters that are intended here, placed sovereignly by the Holy Spirit to show the sovereignty and the mastery and the lordship of Jesus Christ. The first one is the one here before us where Jesus is shown to be the Lord of the deep. He's the Lord of these storms. The second one that we'll actually read about briefly at the end 
is when Jesus cast the demon out of the Gadarene demoniac. And we see that Jesus was the Lord of the demons. Then he goes on to heal a woman who'd had an issue of blood for 12 years and she touched the hem of his garment. Jesus is the Lord of disease. And then finally he raises to life a young 12-year-old girl who had died. We see that Jesus is the Lord of death. So these chapters are here to show their original audience and to show us that Jesus is, he's the Lord of the deep, he's the Lord of the demons, he's the Lord of disease, and he is the Lord of death. It's to show the lordship and sovereignty of Jesus Christ. You'll notice the passage begins in verse 35 with those words, and on that day. Now, to see what day it's talking about, we have to go all the way back to chapter 3, verse 20. This is one long section that all happened on one day. Remember in uh, the life of Jesus, there were some very, very long, tiring days of ministry. Verse 20 says, and he came home, which home was, was Capernaum. That was the hometown of the headquarters of Jesus. And the multitude gathered again to such an extent they could not even eat a meal. So Jesus has to to go out. He can't even eat his food. He's so overwhelmed by the multitudes. Then drop down to chapter 4 and verse 1. And he began to teach them again by the sea. And such a very great multitude gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And then notice Jesus begins to teach them. And if you have a red letter Bible, there's a whole lot of red letters through the rest of chapter 4 because Jesus is sitting in a boat and the people are gathered there on the land and he's teaching to them and ministering to them. Now, chapter 4, verse 35 says, On that day, which is the same day as Jesus has been ministering all day long, when evening had come, So Jesus has been teaching all day, and now he's going to take them to another step in the curriculum. He's going to take them to a test to see if they've been learning the things that he's been teaching to them. And he says to them, let us go over to the other side. Now, right off the bat, the disciples should have known that they were safe because Jesus didn't say, let's go halfway over the lake and let's sink out in the middle. Jesus said, let's get in the boat and let's go to the other side. So they have a promise from Jesus right at the beginning that they're going to make it over to the other side. And what we see is the disciples don't trust the words of Jesus, but we're going to see in this miracle, the main point that I want us to see today is this simple point, that Jesus can be trusted in the storms of life. Jesus can be trusted in the storms of life. Now, the disciples didn't trust him, They failed to listen to what he said. They had a promise. They had Jesus in the boat with them, but they failed to trust. It says here that he left the multitude and they took him along with them. You'll notice it says in the text, just as he was. Jesus had been sitting in this boat probably for hours teaching. They took him just as he was. In other words, he didn't go make any preparations or gather together any of his things. They took him just as he was in the boat. So he's just sitting there, and they get in the boat with him that he's been teaching with, in, and they set out. Now, you might like to do this sometime, those of you that like to do some more in-depth Bible study. If you'll look at uh, Mark chapter 3 through Mark chapter 8, you'll find the word boat mentioned 16 times. You might read that section sometime and just circle all the references to boats. Some have called this the boat theology or the boat motif. 
Jesus taught his disciples some of their most important lessons out there on the Lake of Galilee as they were in boats. In fact, what I would say from Mark's gospel is whenever Jesus gets in a boat, watch out. Something's getting ready to happen. The other thing is whenever Jesus is invited over to dinner to somebody's house, watch out too. Those are the two times when the fireworks seem uh, to begin to fly. But it says at the end of verse 36, and other boats were with him. Most people believe that Peter was the human source for Mark's gospel for his material. And we know Mark was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he got a lot of his information, I believe, from the apostle Peter. And this is the stuff of eyewitness testimony. Peter was there and would have known there were other boats with them. And I think Mark mentions this so that people reading this later will know this wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't just Jesus and a few of his closest followers. There were other eyewitnesses to what took place uh, that night out on the Lake of Galilee as well. Now, that's the setting of this miracle. Let's look at the storm in verse 37. It says, And there arose a fierce gale of wind. Literally in the Greek, there arose a mega storm. A mega storm came up. If you go back to, uh, to Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 24, Uh, Matthew talks about this storm as well. He says this, Behold, there arose a mega storm in the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. The waves are coming over the boat. But he himself was asleep. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, I think it's God's will for everybody to go to Israel at least once in their lifetime. If you've ever been there and you've been to the Lake of Galilee, you'll know that uh, the Lake of Galilee, we call it the Sea of Galilee, is only about 14 miles long and about seven miles wide. It's not very large. And on the western side of the Lake of Galilee, there are these huge uh, hills there, and there are great ravines that have been gouged out uh, in, in those hills. And they serve like gigantic funnels that just funnel the wind down into that area and create storms that come up very suddenly and very violently. That's why you see so many of these storms in the gospel narratives uh, that we have. Now, the Sea of Galilee is over 600 feet below sea level. It's down in this low area, so it's like a low-lying area there where the winds come down and just whip it up like water down inside of a bowl or down inside of a cup. The the boat, as the disciples are in it that night, this storm just comes out of nowhere. And by the way, it's nighttime now. It's the evening, which was the worst time to be out in a boat and to be having problems. Uh, These storms were the most dangerous at night. And the disciples knew that if this boat went down, that they were finished. Now, the boat is being lashed by these howling winds, and four of these disciples, we know at least four of them, were seasoned fishermen. So they would have had a lot of experience being out there on the Lake of Galilee in storms, but they know how bad it is because the end of verse 38, when they wake Jesus up, they say, "'Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing?' We're dying. I mean, this is a bad enough storm that we feel like uh, we're gonna, our lives are going to end tonight. It's all over for us. Now, the storm these disciples were facing was a literal storm. Jesus allowed the disciples to be in this storm to teach them and to teach us lessons not so much about literal storms, but about the storms that we face in life, the storms they would face in life after he died and uh, was raised and went back uh, to heaven. I want to spend a few minutes developing what we might call a biblical stormology. 
or Stormology 101 uh, from the Bible. This miracle teaches us some very important lessons about storms. One of them, and I've already alluded to this, but is the suddenness of storms. The storms of life often come out of nowhere, don't they? Just like this one. It's a phone call, one visit to the doctor, one morning when you show up at work and they tell you that uh, you're no longer needed there. None of us ever know what a day might bring in our lives. And that's really a good thing, isn't it? That we don't know the future. We get up each day, but we don't know what a day might bring. We don't know about the sudden storms that can come into our lives. Another thing we know about is the different sorts of storms. Storms come in all shapes and sizes and varieties. They're financial storms, personal storms, storms in our families or in relationships. There are storms of the loss of friends and loved ones, and there is the terrible storm of temptation. They come in all shapes and sizes. That's what James says in James 1. He says, my beloved brethren, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. The word various there means multicolored. They, they come in all shapes and sizes. So they're sudden. There's different sorts of them. But another thing that I find fascinating is what is the sources of storms? Where do they come from? One of the things, and if this hasn't happened in your life, it probably will at some time. Whenever you face a storm of life or a difficult situation, one of the first things that often comes into our minds is, what is God trying to get me for? In other words, what have I done? We start thinking about our own life and thinking, you know, there must be something in my life why God is allowing this to happen. We often think that we've done something wrong, that it's because of disobedience. Now, that can be why storms come. Certainly, our own disobedience and our own foolishness accounts for a lot of the storms we face in life, right? I mean, we, you know, uh, we don't sometimes don't need need much help creating storms. We do enough of it on our own by our own foolish decisions. That can be true. Think about Jonah. I mean, Jonah faced a literal storm, didn't he, for disobeying God? David faced some storms in life because of his disobedience. Storms can be because of disobedience in our lives. But not all storms are the result of disobedience or discipline. I mean, one of the things is we just live in a fallen world. Our bodies are fallen. They're subject to the curse. And if we live long enough, we will suffer the deterioration of our bodies. I mean, we live in a fallen world. Another thing is we can be taken into a storm by someone else. This happens a lot in families or in marriages. Someone does something foolish and leads another person into a storm that they don't want to go into. You remember in Acts chapter 27, the apostle Paul was on his journey to Rome. And uh, he told the, the men on the ship there, he says, do not leave harbor and don't take this ship out into the open sea. If you do, there's going to be great destruction that's going to take place. What did they do? They didn't listen to Paul and they went anyway. Well, Paul got taken into that storm, even though he had warned them that it was coming. He got dragged into it by somebody else. And that can happen to us sometimes in life as well. But you know, some storms are divine tests. They're tests that the Lord brings into our lives to purify us and to to wean us away uh, from the things of this world. And some tests are even demonic in their source. Now, we don't want to see Satan behind every bush But we know that we war against principalities and powers, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. 
We would be kidding ourselves as believers not to think that sometimes storms in our lives are stirred up by demonic forces. And I think this storm here was a combination of Jesus allowing them to be brought into this storm, but I think it was stirred up by demonic powers. Now you say, well, where do you get that from? Well, look at verse 35, first of all. It says, on that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let's go to the other side. So we know that Jesus knew the storm was coming, And yet they're in the storm because they're obeying him. So part of the source of this storm is divine. Jesus is taking his disciples knowingly into this storm to teach them some lessons. But down in verse 39, there's a a hint here that this storm may be demonic in nature. Notice it says, and being aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. Literally, that word it means to be muzzled. He's telling the storm to be muzzled or to, to, to be quiet. Now, go back to Mark 1, uh, 25 for just a moment, and you'll see a, a parallel here with our text. In Mark 1, 25, Jesus is dealing here with a man who is uh, demon-possessed. And Jesus rebukes the demon, you'll notice in verse 25, and says, be quiet or be muzzled and come out of him. The very same word or phrase in the Greek language. And so many believe that Satan is behind this storm. He's brought this storm to kill Jesus and to cause panic and lack of faith in the lives of the disciples. And so I believe that's what's in play here. But it's kind of like the situation with Job. You remember when Job, uh, when the, the angels, the sons of God appeared before God? God is the one who actually brings up Job to Satan. He says, have you considered my servant Job? And of course, Satan then is allowed to go and to bring storms into the life of Job. But all the time, God is sovereign over that and using those storms to test Job in his life. So I think the same two forces are at work here, satanic, but God being sovereign over all of it and allowing this storm in the life of his disciples. Now this teaches us here that no one is exempt from storms, not even committed followers of Jesus Christ. The presence of Jesus in the boat didn't prevent the storm. A lot of people think, well, if I've got Jesus on board in my life, then everything's going to be great and I'm not going to have any problems. Well, the disciples had Jesus on board, and that didn't prevent the storm uh, from coming. The disciples were in the storm because they had obeyed Jesus. Storms come to all of us. I I like what J.C. Ryle says. Uh, J.C. Ryle is one of my favorite commentators, especially on the Gospels. If some of you like to read uh, great Bible teachers from uh, times past, he was the Bishop of Liverpool back in the 19th century. And uh, he was a great Anglican pastor. J.C. Ryle says this, Let us learn that Christ's service does not exempt his servants from storms. Here were the twelve disciples. They were in the path of duty. They were obediently following Jesus wherever he went. They were daily attending on his ministry and listening to his word. They were daily testifying to the world that whatever the teachers of the law and the Pharisees might think, they believed in Jesus. They loved Jesus and were not ashamed to give up everything for his sake. Yet here we see these men in trouble, tossed up and down by a tempest and in danger of being drowned. Let us note this lesson well. 
If we are true Christians, we must not expect everything smooth in our journey to heaven. We must count it no strange thing if we have to endure sicknesses, losses, bereavements, and disappointments, just like other people. Free pardon and full forgiveness, grace on the way and glory at the end, all this our Savior has promised to give. But He has never promised that we shall have no afflictions. He loves us too well to promise that. Now listen to these words by Ryle. By affliction He teaches us many precious lessons, which without it we would never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and our weakness. He draws us to the throne of grace. He purifies our affections. He weans us from the world, and he makes us long for heaven. On the resurrection morning, we will all say, it was good for me to be afflicted. We will thank God for every storm. Powerful words for us to consider, but very true words. James said, count it. All joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. He didn't say if, but he said when. That's the setting and that's the storm. Let's look now at the Savior. In verse 38, we see the full humanity of Jesus on display. And he himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Jesus is totally exhausted. He's been preaching and teaching all day. Did you know this is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus is asleep? Now, we know he slept other times, obviously. He was a, he's a fully human, and we know he slept at night. But this is the only time in the Gospels we see Jesus asleep. Here is the God-man asleep in the stern of this ship on a cushion. Isn't that beautiful, the little touch? He's asleep on a cushion. Again, Peter was there. He knew it. He'd seen him lying there sleeping on that cushion. This is the creator of the world sound asleep. Think about the mystery of that. The one who created the winds and the waves that are lashing against the boat. He's asleep there in the stern of the ship. Now, the disciples see Jesus sleeping in the midst of the storm, and they begin to wonder, just like we always do when the storms of life come, why isn't he doing something? Look at verse 38. And they said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? What is the first thing that we are tempted to do in the storms of life? God, why don't you care about me? God, are you indifferent? Are you apathetic? Do you you know what I'm going through? Don't you care that I'm perishing? Don't you care that I'm going through this difficult time in life? Did you notice as we read this, Jesus was never awakened by the storm. I mean, think of how loud the storm must have been. What woke Jesus up? The desperate cry of his disciples. That's the thing that got the ear of Jesus. And we learn an important lesson here that most often Jesus will do nothing until we ask him. They had to ask him. They woke him up and asked him to do something. And when they did, he calmed the storm. And I would encourage you today, if you're going through a storm of life, go to him. Ask him to come and to calm the storm on the outside and the storm on the inside. We know that Peter, who again probably was Mark's human source for information, we know that Peter learned that the Lord cared about him in the storms of life because there's that beautiful verse that Peter wrote 30 years later in 1 Peter 5, 7, where he says, casting all our cares upon him because he cares for us. You know, it's the same Greek word, same Greek word. We're out there on the Sea of Galilee. Lord, don't you care for us? 30 years later, Peter says, you can take all your cares and you can cast them on the Lord because the Lord cares for you. 
In fact, I love the way it's stated in the Greek language. It's casting all your anxieties upon Him because it matters to Him concerning you. Whatever it is that you're going through here today, you can be assured that it matters to God concerning you. You may have come in here today thinking, Lord, where are you? Why don't you care about me and what I'm going through? It matters to Him concerning you, what you're dealing with in your life. What a great lesson for all of us to learn and to ponder. Well, verse 38, we see the full humanity of Jesus. The very next verse, we see His full deity. I mean, there's no problem in the Bible, just juxtaposed right next to one another. Jesus is man, he's worn out and exhausted and sleeping, and now we see his full deity on display. It's like the old creed used to say that Jesus was very God of very God, and he's very man of very man. He's the God-man, God and man in one person. And you'll notice he does this miracle. He rebuked the wind and the sea and said, hush, be still. The wind died down and it became mega calm. Now, remember we had a mega storm. Now we have a mega calm that comes. And really there are two miracles here. The first one is the wind that's howling about them, you know, probably blowing 50, 60, 70 miles an hour, whatever it was. All of a sudden the wind just stopped. Now, you think about how eerie that would be. I mean, it didn't kind of go from 50 to 60 down to 40 and kind of slowly go down. It just stopped. Now, that's one miracle. The second miracle is that the waves uh, stopped as well. Now, it wouldn't be a miracle if the waves stopped, but it took a little bit of time, right? I mean, if the wind stopped, eventually the waves would stop too. It'd take a little while sloshing back and forth, but eventually they'd become calm. But the miracle is the wind stopped and then the sea instantly became like a mirror of glass. It's like two giant hands came down and pressed down the Sea of Galilee and it just became flat. Now, I've always wondered what the guys in those other boats were thinking. You remember we read earlier that there were some other boats with them? I mean, the disciples have Jesus in there and hear him say, hush, be still. But think about the people in those other boats. They're over there probably bailing water, and you know they, they think they're getting ready to go down at any moment, and all of a sudden, dead still, dead calm on the water. Man, you know, they just uh, must have been some great stories when they got to the other side as they all discussed what had taken place that night. But Jesus brings a mega calm. He's the sovereign of the storms. Psalm 89.9 says, Thou dost rule the swelling of the seas. When its waves rise, thou dost still them. Psalm 107, verse 29, he caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Jesus Christ is the sovereign of the storms of life. I read a quote years ago that's one of my favorite quotes I've ever read. And it just simply says this, a storm with the Lord Jesus is much better than the calm without him. That's a profound statement to ponder. A storm with the Lord Jesus is a lot better than the calm without him. We look around sometimes at people who don't know the Lord, and they may be healthy, their family's all healthy, they've got a lot of money, their business is going great, everything looks wonderful in their life. And then maybe we look at our own life or the life of another committed Christian that we know who has a lot of problems and having difficulties and struggles, maybe with their health or their business or with their family. I can assure you from the Word of God, it is much better to be in a storm with the Lord Jesus than to have the calm without Him. 
Because those people someday will face the ultimate storm as they stand before a holy God and have to be judged for their sins. So when you're going through a storm in life, always remember, I'm going through this storm, but it's a lot better to be in a storm and to have Jesus than it is to be in the calm without him. That's the setting. That's the storm. That's the Savior. Let's look briefly now at the sequel, this brief sequel. And Jesus said to them, why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? What did Jesus said when they got in the boat? Get in the boat. Let's go to the other side. We're going to make it to the other side. They didn't have faith. They had not only the promise, but they had a person with them. They had the person of the Lord himself, and they failed to trust in him or his promise. We see here that faith is the antidote to fear. But verse 41 is a tremendous climax to this passage. And they became very much afraid. Literally in the Greek, it's they had a megaphobia, mega fear. Now, did you catch the three uses of the word mega in this passage? Starts out with a mega storm. Then the Lord brings a mega calm. Then there's a mega fear, a mega fear of the Lord Jesus. And they feared him. They were afraid of him. They had a profound reverence or an awe for Jesus. Now, here's what gets me about this story is the disciples now are more afraid of Jesus than they were of the storm. I mean, think about that storm that was crashing against them and about to take them under. But then all of a sudden, a man stands up and he says, hush, be still. The wind stops. The Sea of Galilee becomes like glass. And these men look at each other and they are mega afraid. And they look at each other and say, who in the world is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? One of the things that I want in my life more than anything else, and it's still a work in progress, I will admit to you, is I want to fear God more than I fear the storms of life. If we can get to a place where we fear God more than anything else, we fear Him, we have a a deep and profound reverence and an awe for God. If we can fear Him more than we fear anything else, that will take us through the storms of life, to fear Him more than the storms. This final question here in verse 41, who is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, they got to the other side probably late that night or early the next morning. And it says in chapter 5, verse 1, when they get there, immediately a demon-possessed man comes running out to meet Jesus. And what does he say down in verse 7? He cries out with a loud voice, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? How does chapter 4 end? Who is this one? that even the wind and the sea obey him. The disciples get their answer when they hit land. A man who's demon-possessed comes running out of the tombs and says, this is Jesus. He's the son of the most high God. What do we learn from this story about stormology or about facing the storms of life? One thing we learn is if Jesus is in the boat of your life, you can be assured the boat won't sink and the storm won't last forever. That's a great truth to remember. The boat won't sink and the storm won't last forever. Now you say, well, I know somebody that had a big storm and they died. You know, they got sick and they they died. Well, if they're a believer, they went into the presence of the Lord. The storm didn't last forever. The boat didn't sink. See, as Christians, we have a win-win situation. When we're here in this life, we have the Lord on board with us, the sovereign of the storms. But if a storm comes into this life that leads us to the next life, we go immediately into his presence. 
We go into rest and to peace and to the presence of the Lord and his people. In whatever storm it is you're facing today, and again, you're either in one or you're going to go into one. We all know that. Whether it's temptation, finances, employment, your marriage, your family, whatever it is, Jesus can be trusted. Jesus can be trusted in the storms of life. Now, the key question for all of us to answer, is Jesus in the boat of your life? Is Jesus on board in your life? What we have talked about only applies to people who have Christ in their life, that Jesus is on board in their life through having accepted him and put their faith and their trust in him. Did you know that the greatest storm that any person will ever face will be the storm of the judgment and the wrath of God as they stand before a holy God someday in their sins? That's the greatest storm any human being will ever face. And it's coming for those who've not trusted in the Lord. But the Bible tells us that Jesus came and he took the greatest storm for us already. The Bible says that when Jesus hung there on Calvary's cross, that all of the wrath and the judgment of God that was due to us for our sins was taken by Jesus. He took that greatest of storms for us. The Bible says in those beautiful words that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took all of my sin and he took all of my judgment so that I can receive from him all of his forgiveness and all of his righteousness. And if Jesus took for me the greatest storm, then can't I trust him in the lesser storms of life that I endure? If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's what you need to do. Because there's a storm coming for you in the future that's going to eclipse anything you've ever faced in this life. You need to have Christ as your Savior. He is the sin bearer who took the wrath and the judgment of God for you on the cross. And he purchased a full pardon for you. And all you have to do is to simply take it, to receive it by faith. It's a great old poem that I love. It says, Savior, at thy feet I fall, my Lord, my life, my hope, my all, for I have nowhere else to flee, no sanctuary, Lord, but thee. Jesus Christ is the only sanctuary. He's the only sanctuary that we can flee through for our sins, and he's the only sanctuary that we can flee to in this life. He is the sovereign of the storms of life. May God help us to trust him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you now, and we just thank you so much for Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, we thank you. We know that he is God and he's man. He's he's fully man because man must pay for his sins. But he's fully God because only God can pay the infinite price. We thank you for the God-man, Jesus Christ, who purchased a full pardon who offered a perfect sacrifice there on the cross for us, took the wrath of God and the judgment of God against our sins so that we don't have to face the wrath of God's judgment. God, thank you for Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that Jesus is the sovereign of the storms of this life as well. Lord, I pray for any of your dear people here today who are in the grips of a difficult storm that's raging about them. I pray, Father, that they would Rest in the truth that being with you in a storm is much better than being without you in the calm. 
May we all learn, oh God, that great lesson today that Jesus can be trusted in the storms of life. We ask these things in his dear name. Amen. Amen.